0: So tonight we we'll, would um pick up from verse 15 of 1st John chapter 2. I would like us to read the first um, three verses and then we'll do a recap and pick up from there. So 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 to 17.
1: Okay, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in, in the world. If anyone loves the world, the father of the love of the father is not in him. But all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever.
0: Okay, thank you. So, a bit of background context, right? How did we get here? Remember that in First John chapter one, um, John is introducing us to the theme of fellowship, and his main Emphasis for inviting us to fellowship is not that we come to meet people that we like, right? Which is a good thing to come to do. It's not that we come to have a great time. It's that we come to meet with the true God, right? The one who was from the beginning, the one who alone can satisfy our longing. John is so confident that if we join him in fellowship, we are going to encounter the living God, the creator of the universe. And we said that fellowship is at the heart of what it takes to live an authentic Christian life and that fellowship eventually is the difference between any two Christians, between the one who goes deep and the one who remains shallow, between the one who stays on fire and the one who loses that fire. Fellowship is the, is the bridge between all the promises of God and our practical organic experience of those promises. And we began by defining fellowship, right? And we said that fellowship simply means to stay, to stay with something, right? Until you know it intimately and discover its details. And that's why John had to use some repetition to say that even though we saw Jesus, we looked upon him, we had fellowship with him, we had koinonia with him, we looked upon him intimately until we knew him beyond his name or beyond his voice. We knew details about him that could only happen to people who stay. And he's saying that the beauty of Christianity, the beauty of the gospel, is that we have been invited into fellowship with the Father. How beautiful is that? And then he began to tell us about the nature of the Father, right? That the essential nature of God is that God is light. And that in case you don't know, you don't have any other measure for for checking if what you're dealing with is of God, you can measure it by light. Light is that which measures, which reveals, which energizes. Right? God is the reference point for all truth, for all reality. So there is nobody who comes to God who remains unholy. To say that again, there's nobody who comes to God who fellowships with God that remains unholy because the very nature of god the very essence of god contradicts sin right it contradicts iniquity and so i don't know if you're like me and sometimes you think "Hmm, you know this christianity you know jesus lived 2000 years ago and you know looking at us today some things are working some things are not working how do we really know that we've received the pure gospel and all of that you see the primary way to know is the amount of light that is produced in your life. Only an encounter with the living God can produce holiness. Holiness remains the mark of God. And so in case you doubt everything else, you you, you have to always come back to the fact that whichever God can produce holiness, and not not a holiness of of, um, segregation, but a holiness that is beautiful inside out. Whichever God can produce such quality is a true God. And that's what John says is the essential thing that we're going to know about God. Well, he encouraged us in 1 John chapter 1 to press into fellowship and that if we do so, we will find that our sins are forgiven, right? We will find that we'll begin to walk in the light as he is in the light, and we would begin to we'll begin to mature in our fellowship with God. So the last week, when we when we opened to chapter two, we then saw that the primary outcome of fellowship with the Father is that we get to know Him. If you remember, and in our definition of what it means to know the Father, we said that knowing the Father means to become one with Him, and there is a there is a there is an ontological sense, right, in which we are one with God that is true. The Bible says that he that is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. But you see, that union is a partnership. And that's why the word fellowship doesn't just mean friendship and intimacy. It also means partnership. That union requires my intentional, active participation for me to live in the experience of what it means to be one with God. That means that, It is God who's living through me. It's God who's thinking through me. It's God who's acting through me. This is the life that Jesus put on display when he walked this world. A life that was completely one with God. And because he was completely one with God, he was always at peace, regardless of the circumstances. He was full of power when that is what was necessary. He was full of joy, even in the midst of tribulations. Even though he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief he was still full of joy his his presence in a place radiated calm he was the him that was going to the cross (laughs) was the one telling his disciples do not let your hearts be troubled if you believe in God believe also in me and this is the same quality of life that is called eternal life in scripture. This is the same quality of life that you and I have been invited to. And that's the benefit of fellowship, that the more we fellowship with God, the more we get to know him. And in the first 14 um, verses of chapter two, we saw some of the effects of of knowing God intimately. The first of which is that the problem of sin will be obliterated, like we've said, right? Because John said, I'm writing to you um, so that you will not sin. However, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father so that as you, because God's method is growth, right? God prefers that you grow into maturity rather than for you to be born mature. So as you walk with God, you'll find out that the issues of sin in your life will progressively be dealt with and obliterated and removed. And when that is done, your knowledge of God allows you to love people with a love that is not natural. Or that is not that is not of you you know there's a love that is of your of yourself you, you know you have the capacity to love by yourself but your love has a distance it has an elastic limit right it has a distance that it can run and the greatest test of our spiritual of our spirituality of our maturity or the greatest practical test of it is our love for our brother and that's why John began to say that if you say, Right, that you that you have fellowship with God, but then you hate your brother. He said you are still in darkness. It means that um, the way he puts it is that you are lying, right? And that means is what that means is that you think that you're having fellowship. And so you're saying that you're having fellowship, but the fruits that are coming to your life are evidence that even though you might be doing something, you know, you're not really fellowshipping. And that's why we pointed out that it's not enough that we have consistency, which is great, and we must have. It's not enough that we have intensity, which is great, and we must have. But we must also have sensitivity. You need sensitivity if you're going to fellowship with someone, if you're going to stay with someone, right? Um, Well, the goal tonight is not to go over all of that again, but I just wanted to bring us up to speed with how we got here. So... John has essentially presented fellowship with the Father as the the ultimate reality, if you like, as the ultimate thing that we should pursue in our Christian life, as the thing that fills us, that satisfies us, that sets us in the place where we can begin to fulfill the reason for which God made us, where we can begin to satisfy His heart. And so, the question then that these verses that we're going to read answer is what is the greatest threat? To our fellowship with God. Because remember that we started by saying, right, that the quality of your Christian life is going to be determined by the quality of your fellowship. So it means that if Satan cannot prevent you from enjoying quality fellowship with the Father, then he he absolutely can do nothing about your your life. You're going to take off. It's inevitable. So even if, if you if you put yourself in Satan's shoes, your your strategies or strategics or as it were would be targeted at disrupting fellowship. Right? What is it that is so that's that is so um what's the right word now? What is it that is so efficient that the devil finds so efficient in using to disrupt fellowship in our lives? And that's what these verses are concerned about. Stephanie, your hand is raised.
1: I'm sure I yeah this question last week or maybe i didn't with regards to this fellowship thing is it just prayer is it through prayer that we fellowship i i'm asking because you know when they say fellowship with the father is important is important they also emphasize you know prayer is you know the most important thing talking to god all the time communicating with him would you say that fellowship is just that thing prayer you know, ministering mm-hmm. to God, you know, the Father. I'm just asking because I've been thinking about it.
0: Well, thank you for your question. Um, there is, a, there is a sense in which we can say that prayer is what fellowship is. And I'm going to explain what that means, right? Because I guess the first problem that you're going to encounter when we're talking about fellowship is that we're talking about fellowshipping with a spirit, right? Because the Bible says God is spirit, so you cannot see God. If I told you that you need to fellowship with your husband, for example, um, or you need to fellowship with your best friend, um, you will not be so concerned about what, what do I mean, right? Because that's in the realm of your natural capacities, right? You can figure out what to do. You can, okay, you can go talk to your friend, find out what do they like, um, and then you 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 like you do the activity together, you find out maybe what is their love language. Maybe they like hearing stories and then you tell stories and then you do all of that in hope that the person responds, right? And reciprocates. You see, but when you're dealing with the spirit, the only way to fellowship is by is by prayer, which is what we call prayer. Prayer is the basic expression of the spiritual life. The same way that you 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 fellowship with the natural life, right? By breathing in and out. It's almost unconscious, as it were. That's what prayer is. Prayer is the simplest, basic expression of our spiritual life. And it doesn't matter if it is quiet, contemplative prayer, or if it is (laughs) boisterous tongues with high decibels, you know, or if it is um, praying out the words of scripture, or if it is pouring out your heart before God as a lamentation. Um, Prayer is the basic expression of fellowship. With his spirit so I, I was careful in how i gave that answer because um when we say prayer we tend to think of prayer in a very very narrow sense um, of those very specific dedicated times that we um, spend and those times are necessary remember we said you have to begin with consistency but prayer is much more sensitivity breathing in and out and talking to the lord and then taking it from there. but you see, if all you do is pray and you don't listen, or, I mean, the very it's hard to define these things, right? Because the very idea of prayer should involve conversation. So I cannot come and talk from the beginning to the end and say that I really prayed, right? If it was prayer, then there should be some feedback. It's just that the way the feedback comes, because I'm dealing with a spirit, may not necessarily be in cognitive terms but the feedback can come in form of peace in my spirit. The feedback can come in form of joy, like a river flowing in me. The feedback can come in form of assurance, or it can come in express terms, right? In terms of in terms of words. So I'm saying that to say that the, the product of prayer should be a life that you live. So if somebody says that they are praying, which is what John is is driving at that if someone says that they are praying, and then we look at the fruits that are coming from the person's life, John says the person is lying. And I don't want us to see lying here as something that is beyond any of us, because we think that lying is a premeditated, deliberate um obstruction of truth, and that is what it is. But lying is also the fact that what I'm saying does not match up with reality right? So, and that's what he's saying, that if I'm saying that I'm fellowshipping with God, right? And then I'm not seeing the fruits of fellowship. So, either God is a liar, right? And he's not faithful to his promise of, visit, of drawing near to those who draw near to him. Or I have to admit that, okay, I'm lying. And I'm lying means that um, I'm not really having fellowship. I say that I'm having fellowship, But when I go into the depths of fellowship, I discover that I'm not having fellowship. Remember that we're dealing with Apostle John. Apostle John is the last apostle, the one that calls us back to the fundamental things, the one that draws the line very clearly for us. And that's why his letter is so beautiful. And our hope is that this letter would would, would draw us into fellowship, would recognize the areas of our lives that are not really fully submitted to fellowship and trust God to to empower those areas. Sorry, that was a long answer, Stephanie. I hope that somewhere in between you found your answer.
1: Yes, thank you.
0: Okay then. So we were saying that what is the greatest threat to fellowship, right? If, If you were to put yourself in the shoes of the enemy, the enemy knows that fellowship is the secret of your life. And I want to make this statement again because it sounds very simplistic, right? But if you read very carefully the words of Jesus in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 5, in John chapter 6, John chapter 8, John chapter 14, John chapter 17, if you read the words of Jesus carefully, Jesus made it clear, painstakingly, that the secret of his life was not him per se, but a fellowship he was having with the Father. It was like, whether it is good works that you're seeing, or it is good character that you're seeing, or even if you want to call me good, all of that is flowing from a relationship. Everything he was, everything he did, he did in partnership with the one who was inside him. And that was a deliberate setup because he was, remember when we did Hebrews, right? We said that Jesus was God's last message to man. He was an advertisement of what God created you and I to be. So that the possibilities that He put on display is how God expects that we will live our lives. So I said that to say that fellowship is the secret, our oneness with God is all that we have. that's all that we have the The prophetic Old Testament picture of this right is the land of promise that God gave to Abraham and to and to Israel, right the land it was landlocked by enemies. And that was a deliberate arrangement. It was a very fruitful land flowing with milk and honey. The land was blessed. Everything but it was surrounded by enemies. And its geographic location was a message to the inhabitants of the land. And the only way you can stay in this land is, is your, your alignment with God. And the entire Old Testament is proof of what happened when that alignment was broken. They were just a picture. God allowed that very uncomfortable setup to exist so that it remains a permanent picture to us of what life in the spirit is like. That you might think that you have a lot of options. You have a lot of alternatives. But the thing that counts the most in your life is your fellowship with the father. And so you can say that Satan is very interested, very interested in disrupting your fellowship with the father. So usually... He, he he starts with the problem of sin because sin is the greatest hindrance be, with, with, to fellowship with the Father. Sin is a hindrance both for the Father, it's also a hindrance for our conscience. And that's why God decided to make a system of grace available so that sin is no longer a hindrance between us and him. But you see, Satan knows often that we don't know that the system of grace is available. So what he does is that he, he mounts his, 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 his um, television set or his whatever, he mounts it on our conscience. And Satan knows that he can get most men with sin. Something that was introduced in your childhood, perhaps a terrible experience or a false idea introduced into your thinking is eventually going to lead you into some kind of bondage to sin. And that bondage to sin becomes the first hindrance Right to your fellowship with the Father, but John says that I'm writing these things to you so that you do not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate to the Father. So, even though sin is such a powerful weapon for the enemy, it's also a very easy to overcome weapon because we have an advocate. Right? So, if only you can arrive at the revelation of the fact that you have an advocate and you learn to go to your advocate to plead or to place yourself on the pleadings of the blood of your advocate, then you're going to find out that in your fellowship with God, sin would not necessarily be the barrier or at least not a primary barrier, right? But in verse 15, he introduces us to an even, <laughs> he introduces us to an even more terrible barrier so that even for the believer, who has gone past the problem of sin, let's put it like this, or or at least has found the arrangement that God has made to deal with their sin, there is a potent weapon that Satan uses. And that weapon is called distraction. Look at what he says in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So, there's an exclusivity here that John is making. And this is one of the trademarks of John's writings. John is saying that it's not possible for me to love the world and to love the Father. Now I can say that I, that I can say it, of course, which almost all of us say, right? I can say it's possible for me to love the world and still claim to love the Father. <laughs> but John is a prophetic apostle and he's giving us the clear line of discernment that whatever experience of love, that you are having with the Father while still holding on to a love of the world, is nothing close to what God has for you. And that very posture of holding on to that thing unknown to you is limiting your experience of the Father. He says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now before we jump into this and proceed, I just want to create a balance here, right? Um John is not saying, do not participate in the world, right? He's not say do not taste, do not touch. This is not legalism. He's not saying, do not touch, do not taste, do not even have. Because the, 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 the word translated world here is the Greek word, the cosmos. And that is, the cosmos is everything that makes up the material world right? It's it's people, it's it's natural resources, everything that is in the world that makes it beautiful. That is what the cosmos is. And in John 3.16, the Bible makes it very clear that God so loved the cosmos, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So it seems to be a contradiction here. If God so loved the world that he was willing to die for it, why is he telling us (laughs) not to love the same world here. So at least that already indicates to you that the love here that is being spoken of is different from the one that God loved the world with. And the aspect of the world that is being spoken of here is different, right? In John 3.16, God loved the people of the world, right? And of course, he loved the idea of people in the world. But here, John is clear that there are certain things in the world that have the capacity to draw on our affection and if they successfully draw on our affection our fellowship with the father will be affected the love of the father in us will not be perfected so anybody who wants to abide in god who wants to maintain fellowship with the father will learn to kill some desires it's a necessity for abiding in God, right? And so he says, I hope that balance helps of saying that John is not saying, do not touch, do not taste, right? Do not look, do not have, because you're going to participate in the world and God wants you to participate in the world, but rather he's saying, do not love it. Do not love the idea that all that matters is this world. Do not even love the idea that anything in this world can satisfy the world as it is is under the judgment of death and that means very deep things it doesn't just mean that it's, it's destined to perish which is part of what it means it also means that anything you call satisfaction in this world has has been tainted with death so that the very thing that you're pursuing has a curse of death on it. And what that means is the thing may promise you satisfaction, may satisfy you initially, but it's going to let you down. You, you're going to find that if you travel far enough in it, you'll you, you travel into emptiness. You'll travel into the manifestation of death, one of which is emptiness. So it is a trap. It is a trap to allow the love of something transient right to to hurt your fellowship with the father it's a trap sammy your hand is up so um for i don't know if maybe because of where i am now i'm kind of big on words and how the <laughs> they apply on communication so uh, when you said uh, do not touch do not eat do not drink because we will participate in the world uh I don't know. I wanted to appeal if there is a way to, uh, how would I say, recommunicate that because I, I don't know how to say this. But you get what I mean? Well, I get, I'm not sure 100%. Like, what's the question? Well, when you say, we, when the apostle said, you know, he's not telling us not to touch it because we'll participate in the world. Mm-hmm. How do you mean participate in the world? I mean that in the simplest terms possible, right? That, um, okay, maybe we jumped a little bit, but he's, so I will, I will just go to verse 16 because I think it to help answer this question, okay, Sammy? Um So what he's after, right, here is the things in the world. There's none of us who does not need the things in the world. If not, we will not be able to operate in the world. So he's saying the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of the life. He said, these things are not of the father, but of the world. So you might ask yourself, what is then the lust of the flesh or what's the lust of the eyes? If we start with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the flesh are natural desires that have become exaggerated. So it means that these desires are natural. They are part of the natural man, right? They are, you can you can say in quotes, they are your right or they are a necessity for your life, right? So it's it's necessary for you to eat food for example it's necessary for you to sleep is you god gave you a sexual instinct right so you can say that it's necessary for you to have at some point in your life sexual relationship of course in the context of marriage those things in themselves are not evil but you see there is something in us that is called the flesh that has mutated itself over 6,000 years of our existence on this earth, that amplifies those desires beyond the boundaries that God set for them so that those desires eventually, eventually come in direct confrontation with your love for the Father so that eventually you would have to choose. And he's saying, do not trade your love for the Father. Do not trade your fellowship with the Father with anything that is in this world, right? So when I say you're going to participate in the world, I mean that you're going to eat food, right? You're going to get married. You're going to engage in sex, right? You're going to go to university. You're going to get a degree. You're going to make money. You're probably going to invest in real estate and and have apartments, houses. John is not saying, because that's unfortunately how a lot of people Interpret verses like this. John is not saying that anyone who loves the Father should have absolutely nothing to do with this, should seclude themselves from the cosmos. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, do not love. Because if you love, a time is coming when that love is going to come head to head with your fellowship with the Father. And the choice that you make is what is going to determine where you stop or continue on your journey with God. Does that make sense, Sami? Okay, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So I was saying all of that to say that the greatest weapon against our fellowship with God is the distraction that is advanced by the loss that are in the world. But something that's interesting here is that John is saying that these things are in the world, right? The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. He's saying that these things are in the world, but even though they are in the world, their manifestation is inside us, right? So it doesn't matter how much attraction there is on the outside. If there was no desire inside, then it wouldn't be a source of temptation. In fact, the word lost wouldn't even be used in the first place. So it's as though in each and every one of us, there is a seed of the world in us. There are many um, terms that the New Testament uses to describe that seed. One of it is the flesh. One of it is the old man. That seed is your primary enemy to fellowship with God. Which is why every time that you make up your mind that you want to have any kind of spiritual regime you know, or Satan notices that you have stumbled upon light and this light is going to accelerate your walk with God, you're going to find that there are one of two um, tactics that the enemy is going to use. And these are well established in scripture, right? Remember Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the sower. Jesus says that if you understand this parable, you will be able to interpret every other parable. And if we lay aside the seed that fell on the wayside for now, even though that itself is a picture of distraction, but let's lay it aside for now. you find that the two main reasons why the seed did not profit was adversity on the outside or distraction on the inside, Right? And if you notice the pattern of our New Testament letters that we've studied, whether it is Paul writing or it is Peter writing or it is now John writing, they are usually addressing one of these two things. Either they are addressing the danger of adversity because adversity has the capability either to advance you in God or to pull you away from God. Or they are addressing the distraction. And what we have seen in the letters is that In the and in church history, is that adversity has not been as potent as distraction, right, in leading people away from the purity and sincerity of fellowship with God. So that the same people who overcome adversity, the same people who overcome adversity, right, and and are able to labor in the gospel can, can become distracted by offense. I'm not I'm not making up what I'm saying, right? If you read the book of Philippians, the book of Philippians is one of the most beautiful of Paul's writings. In fact, theologian says it's the most beautiful. He has very affectionate, caring language. And at the end of the book, chapter four, he begins to tell us about two sisters that had labored with him in the gospel. So these sisters had had done the sweating, but now Satan had found a way to, to put those two people or um. Odeous, odious, Udius and touching. that's how I remember their names. Satan had found a way to put those two people on coalition course so that the difficulty of ministry was not what was eventually a threat to them, but the distraction of something inside of them. Something inside of them that has the capacity to be offended. Something inside of them that had the capacity to, to want to respond, right? To want to fight back, to want to... Win the day that thing was the bigger threat that demanded the letter from the apostle in prison let's look at some of these scriptures very quickly to to make sure this is well established in Matthew chapter 13 from verse 18 when Jesus was giving us the interpretation of the parable of the sower therefore hear the parable of the sower when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it now It is possible that we can fit into this does not understand a category, right? That we are so distracted that we do not pay the price to understand the word. So there are many things God says to us that falls by the wayside because of that. It says that the wicked one comes and snatches away from what is sown in his heart. This is he who received it by the wayside. Verse 20. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when, Jesus said, is a when, when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who received the seed among the thorns is he who hears the word. And the cares of this world. Now, do you see the loss of the flesh, the loss of the eyes, the pride of life? And and one thing I want us to see here is that the <laughs> the cares of this world, right, are not bad things. There's nothing that Jesus is listing here that in itself is a bad thing. Riches by themselves are not bad if they are gotten by honest means. The problem with riches is that they can deceive, right? They can lead one to a place where we start trusting in in riches or see riches as a validation of our lives and diminish our fellowship with God on account of riches. The cares of this world are the natural anxieties of this world. And I can assure you, if you decide to take a journey in God, Satan will pummel you with cares, with anxiety. He will make you want to leave your, your devotion to God, your dedication to God, to begin to pursue things. right? And that's what it means that the world fell among thorns. Those thorns represent distraction. And eventually he becomes unfruitful. And this is where the battle is. That if the enemy cannot stop you from coming into Christ and receiving him into your heart, then he wants to make sure That your fellowship, your oneness with the Father is so affected that you become unfruitful. And his primary weapon is the distraction that is in our souls. And that distraction can come either through the lust of the eyes or through the lust of the flesh or through the pride of life. They need to show that we are not failing. They need to be recognized, right? They need to be appreciated. They need to belong. Right? They need to to have a rank and to outrank. Friends, so many things can become a distraction to our oneness with God. And I cannot really explain it properly. I'm really sorry, but I hope that the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to really understand the things that I'm not even able to say. That even what you might say is your destiny, right? It's your calling. Your calling can become a distraction. The things that you know can become a distraction, right? Because somebody can be so devoted to destiny that destiny becomes an idol. That destiny, that someone can insist so much on manifestation, for example, that it doesn't matter what the father is saying. So that something that in itself was supposed to be good becomes the thing that hurts our communion with God. john the apostle calls it the world he says everything that is in the world because think about it why is destiny an idol isn't it because of the glamour that comes with destiny right isn't it because of the greatness you know we hear that word thrown around the lord in our generation greatness isn't it because of the greatness that comes with destiny oh i'm called to be an apostle to the nations or oh, I'm called to be this. And <laughs> what I'm called to be, I'm willing to sacrifice relationships. I'm willing to, to destroy everything that God has built around me just to fulfill something that is eventually for myself. Even destiny can become a distraction if it is not submitted to the Father. All of this is to say that anyone who abide in God, because that's our theme for tonight, that's the overarching theme. Anyone who's, who will abide in God we we'll need to learn to kill some desires. Yes. It's a it's it's not a strange thing, right? I know that when we're talking about the love of God, you probably thought it was just an all-emotional thing. Well, the thing is that you and I have something in us that makes us susceptible to distraction or deception, because you're going to see as we read that if you don't deal with the problem of distraction, it's going to open the door eventually to deception. It's going to open that door. And so like the question I would like us to answer is, you know, what, what drives you? Where, where are you finding your joy? You know, like what is it that gives you joy and peace? Where are you finding your joy and peace? What is, what is the controlling influence in your life? Are you really trusting in God? or in yourself and what you can accomplish. You see, all of us have something in us that we always have to watch that we always have to and it is that thing in us that makes the life of the cross a necessity for all of us. And that's why Jesus says that if any man will come after me, the curriculum of discipleship begins with denying himself. And we looked at this when we did second Peter, I think chapter 2. Denying himself taking up his cross and follow me. So if I'm going to maintain my fellowship with the father, if I'm going to maintain my love for the father, if I'm going to experience that oneness that is the promise of fellowship, a time comes when I have to kill the desires of the flesh. It means that sacrifice will always have to be in my life. Yes, if I find that money is becoming a controlling influence in my life, I turn it over to God. I find that food is becoming a controlling influence in my life. I turn it over to God that nothing, nothing becomes an idol. Nothing becomes an entry point for distraction. Not the blessings of God, not the adversities of Satan. Nothing becomes a distraction. Look at what it says in verse 17, that the world is passing away. Friends, think about it. Whether it is the food you are eating, I bet you in the next 24 hours, the food will already pass away, right? Or is the friends that you have? Because for many of us, friends have become the distraction. Our unwillingness to lose certain friendships has planted a wedge between us and God, right? Finance or fortune can become a distraction. Fame can become a distraction. Even family, as beautiful as it is, can become a distraction but john is saying that the world is passing away there is a a level of uncertainty that is in this world that everything that you and i labor for is passing away it doesn't mean we shouldn't have those things because we need them for this world but the mindset is that it's passing away it's transient it's not eternal it's not the thing that matters most even if i lose it as long as i have the love of god in my heart then i didn't lose everything So in such a transient world, right? In such a world of uncertainty, you know, where COVID can break out tomorrow and everything is shut down. What is it that you can bank on? What is the safest place to be that ensures that what I'm doing now has value, not only now, but in eternity, it will last. It will survive the seasons. It will survive the test. John says it's the will of God. He who does the will of God abides forever. Stephanie, your hand is up.
1: Forgive me, Joshua. Um, You know the whole saying of the patient dog who eat the fattest cat bone mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, I was talking to somebody and the person was like, you are darling. You know, you have to go on, you know, Facebook and, the, you know, basically just trying to say I'm not, pushing myself enough you know to get funds to get money to get you know this thing that and the person said the patient dog will not Will not eat any fat cow. The patient dog will die. You better get (laughs) off and do something. Now, no, it's not as if I was, you know, being lazy about the stuff. But the person was saying people are getting a lot of funds. People are getting money for this and money for that. There are ways you can do these things to buy a house and this and that. And I and for that whole period, I would say I was distracted. I mean, I know the Lord has done so much for me, but I was now asking Lord when would this happen to me? Well, why Why is it that people are getting ahead of me and this and that? And, and I just caught myself like, okay, what are you doing right now? Somebody just broached something to you. And, well, it just made it look as if I'm embracing, I'm holding on to God, but what that, that whole process was not the right thing to do because in a way I was slacking, in a way I was dulling. I don't know if 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 that kind of thought, pursuit for money, for I'm not, not fame per se, but just to be settled, to have a good home, to have a good. Home. I don't know if that is what you would call a distraction.
0: Hmm. Well, I guess I would need to know the details of your situation and why what you're being asked to pursue, how you're being asked to pursue it and why you're not pursuing it already. But what I'm saying is that there is no price too high to pay for your oneness with God. If you dis- like like we said, right? If you're going to walk with God, you need to begin by losing yourself. Now, when we say losing yourself, we try to make it very clear that losing yourself does not mean self-denial, right? It doesn't mean okay, I'm not going to eat today so I can love God. No, it's more radical than that. It means that your right to yourself let's put it like this your right to yourself is handed over it means that you are ambitionless remember i was giving you so those references in in john chapter 5 6 8 that jesus was telling us a secret to his life and he told us that the reason why my judgment is always right is that i do not seek my own will right i do not seek my own glory so if it is the will of god And if it is to the glory of God that you have all the wealth in the world, by all means, push yourself, right? (laughs) But if it is, if as you perceive it, it's not captured in the will of God, and the will of God is rather for you, for example, to stay in academia. and, And the riches and the wealth that God wants you to produce in academia is paper after paper after paper. Jesus said that the way to fellowship with the Father is to lose yourself. I'm I'm his slave. You know that this is how the apostles always introduce themselves. Paul. Paul, a slave of Christ. A bond servant of Christ. The question is, who made him a bond servant? It wasn't Jesus who made him a bond servant. Jesus only pitched, pitched a vision to him. And he made the decision that this vision becomes the meaning of my life. And that's also something else to say, right? That each of us must have a clear vision of what God has for us. And even if you don't have the big picture, at the very least, have a vision of what God has for you in this. season. Right? It's a mistake to pursue money. It's a mistake to pursue money. It allow money instead to pursue you. It's a mistake to pursue money. It's very easy for us to become distracted by who bought a house. We haven't bought one. Who married. We have not. We have not married. Who had a baby. We have not had a baby who's on YouTube, has 5,000 followers, we don't have one. All of those things, all of those things are distractions. And they have the potential to come in the way of our love for the Father. Did my attempt help you, Stephanie?
1: Yes, thank you.
0: Okay. Okay. So now before we read verse 19 to 20, verse 18 to 23, I want to remind us of what we said in 2 Peter chapter 2, right? Remember in 2 Peter chapter 2, we're looking at the cure for deception. And in many ways, the things John is talking about and is about to talk about are exactly what Peter talked about in 2 Peter chapter 2, just in different styles. John, Peter was saying rather that just like there were false prophets, right? In the Old Testament, in the New Testament, there's going to come false teachers and they're going to come in subtly privately so it means what they are saying it's not going to look like it's harmful right but the reason why anybody is going to be deceived eventually is because of covetousness is because of a loss in the heart and that the root of deception is covetousness satan cannot deceive us except by appealing to a lost in us and and that's why when we did that topic we said that if you're going to um overcome deception, you need to begin by what we have just said, right? By losing yourself, by surrendering your lust. And then he told us again that, you know, these are false teachers, right? And he says they come in subtly. So if we're going to overcome deception, we need to have a commitment to the whole truth. Because one of the things that deception does is that it takes a part of the truth and it blows it up and makes it like the whole. So Peter, you, and Peter put it in his more, if you like, evangelistic language. But John is about to put it in his own prophetic language. If we say that your oneness, my oneness, my fellowship with the Father is the most important asset that we have. Because if you have fellowship with the Father, you're eventually going to be wealthy. That's the story of Abraham. That's the story of Isaac. That's the story of Jacob. That's the story of every man, who walk with God, that if you have fellowship with God, the wealth that you need is not going to be the problem. But it's possible that the pursuit of wealth can become the hindrance to fellowship. The pursuit of fame or fortune, right, or family or finance or friends or food can become the distraction. And the reason why John does not want us to be distracted is that distraction opens the door for the Antichrist. And the Antichrist is anybody that denies Christ, essentially. It's possible that because of silver, I can deny Christ. Because what does it mean to deny Christ? Is it not that I'm presented with silver and I'm presented with Jesus and then I choose silver? (laughs) If all of us are being honest, we have done it before, right? And it is only God in his mercy, right, that just keeps bringing us back. But you see, if one continues in that way, if one continues in that way, then it can lead to the ultimate lie of eventually denying completely that Jesus is the Christ. And that's why the Apostle John is telling us, do not open that door because there's nothing you're going to get by opening that door that can compare. That can compare. In fact, like Stephanie Gretzinger put it in her song, is it even sacrifice if I trade the world for you? Like, if I, if I compare your infinite value, can I even call it sacrifice? That I laid down the word for you. Okay? Stephanie, can you read first then? Verse 18 to 23. We're running on time today.
1: Okay, little children. Verse 18, little children. It is the last hour. And as you have heard, that the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they were, but they went out that they might be made manifest, that none of them were of us. But you, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And... It, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Antichrist, who denies the Father and the Son. Let's go down in 1, read 23. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also.
0: Okay, thank you very much. So, John... Eventually, he's trying to warn them about false teachers, right? Who came from us, but they were not of us. So f- quite a few interesting points here. He's trying to warn them about some false teachers, but he didn't go straight to the false teachers. He said, the false teachers, the Antichrist, their ministry cannot prosper if they, if Satan does not find a lost in you that is compatible with his merchandise. So do you see John's approach? Now, what he's ultimately after... It's your fellowship with the father, because once he gets you in the fellowship, he can guarantee that your life, even if you may have all the money in the world, but your life will not be fruitful in the knowledge of God. And so he's saying that to protect your fellowship with God, you need to kill certain desires. You need, or at least at the very least, you need to have it in your mindset that God retains the right to kill things in my life. He retains the right to tell me, empty your bank account. He retains the right to tell me fast for three days, right? As long as God does not have that <laughs> elbow room, if you like, to elbow us out of the way and take control, then these people these people still have a ministry. They have a potential to get at our hearts. So we're saying, little children, it is the last hour. You know, we said before, I think when we did the, the introduction to this book, that um, in our generation, we're very obsessed with end-time prophecy. You know, what's going to happen in Israel, you know, who's going to be America's president? What does that mean for Isaiah chapter this? But in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit of God, God himself, gave us very clear predictions of the things that we're going to be dealing with. So that even if you don't have any kind of prophetic gift, which John says you should have, he says you have an, an anointing and that anointing makes you prophetic. But even if you don't even have that, If you pay attention to the word of God, which is going to say towards the end of the chapter, if you pay attention to the word of God, if you value it, if you give it priority, you will be equipped with enough discernment for the last hour. And the last hour, the the Spirit speaks expressly that the primary thing the church should be dealing with is deception. Yes, it's deception. And of course, deception is so much easier, Right? for us to fall into today than it actually was in their time, which is why it's interesting. Like the spirit spoke with an urgency, right? That made these people write these things so that because they wrote it with the understanding that they were writing to their generation. And so the spirit put that urgency in them, but that urgency was so that he can speak to us. The reason why he said that it's much easier in our generation is that our generation has an amplifier that this generation didn't have. That amplifier is social media, right? That someone can can sit in their room in any part of the world and act drama for you. And then you now watch it on YouTube and start crying. You don't know the motive behind the drama. You don't know the spirit behind (laughs) the drama. You are just moved by the emotions of it. And in that scenario, unbeknownst to you you can yield yourself to so you see how easy it is to be deceived because in those days if you're going to consume even christian content right at the very least you had to be in a service and when you're there physically you can observe things you know you can see okay you can you can look at mannerisms you can feel the atmosphere you can at least you know figure out where you are (laughs) these days you just have a very sharp camera on youtube the spirit speaks expressly that the main thing the church is going to be dealing with is deception. And it's not even only the church, right? Uh, even though the church is at the forefront of it. I was just watching a video earlier today, a short clip that was saying that previously, um, 10 to 20 years ago, only one, right? In over 10,000 people identified as transgender, or at least not identified, but um came forward to say that they're not comfortable in the gender they were born in, or as they say, the gender they were assigned at birth. In 2023, right, that percentage has increased by 6,000% from the video I watched, 6,000%. So the question is what changed, right, in 20 years? What changed in 10 years? Is it how people are born that was changed? No, the only thing that's changed is the amplifier, social media, right, and trends. So I'm just saying all of that to say that even though this was written 2,000 years ago, the last hour is is actually all he was written for. And he says, as you have heard, that the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. So of course, John, when he speaks about the Antichrist, he's speaking about a person that is being anticipated in the future. Because some people, the way they read Revelation is by allegorizing everything in Revelation. So they allegorize Antichrist. And they use this scripture to say that the Antichrist does not refer necessarily to a singular individual in history, but rather to different individuals that will arise at different times in history. So Nero was an antichrist because he persecuted the church viciously, right? Hitler was an antichrist. Stalin was an antichrist and all of that. John says that you have heard that the antichrist, a a specific person is expected in history. However, this person is only going to be an ultimate expression of a spirit that is now at work, right, by which we know. And so when we see fierce opposition to the gospel, fierce opposition to Christ, you know, the Bible says, why do the hidden rage, right? And the the people imagine a vain thing, the kings of the earth and the rulers, they take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bonds. Now, I think we've done that scripture before and we said that their bonds are the laws of God, the boundaries, because if you look at creation, creation has boundaries. And, that's, and, and the Bible gives testimony to the fact that creation has boundaries. For example, God testifies in the prophets that when you look at the ocean, there's a reason it has not overflown the earth. And that is because when God separated the, the water from the land, he gave the oceans a boundary so that even when there's high waves, the thing just comes and then it, it reaches its boundary, its divinely assigned boundary, and it goes back. And that's the only reason why the earth... It's not covered with water because there's way more water on earth than there is land. In God's creation, there are boundaries. The laws of God are supposed to be the boundaries for human life. But the kings of the earth, the rulers, take counsel together and says, let's, let's remove those boundaries and let's make everything fluid. John says that when you see that, then you know that you are in the last hour. But now he begins to inform us of the tools for discernment. Now, we said that after Peter has dealt with, the, dealt with the question of lust, right, covetousness, it was like, if you're going to avoid deception, make sure that there's nothing in you that Satan can appeal to, that when he appeals to that thing, that thing becomes the doorway through which he can draw you After that, make sure you have a total commitment to the truth. And the way Peter saw truth, was as the body of of revealed knowledge right? that God has given to us. But of course, we know that John had a much deeper understanding. Well, let me not say deeper because I'm not comparing both of them, but John had a 3D view of truth. Let's put it like this, a different dimensional view of truth. To John, in his writings, truth is not just um, facts that are revealed about our salvation, which it is, right? truth is not just logically coherent facts truth is not just spiritually um correct facts truth is a witness john takes us into the strategy of the of discernment and says in many things that you're going to have to deal with there's not going to be right or wrong necessarily you know if if in in if we just put it in theory for example if you if God says fast and you say, no, I'm hungry, I need to eat. From the outside, there's not going to be, right? It's not wrong to eat food, right? If if God says, um, if you say, okay, I don't want to go for this party, this person's birthday party, and God says go, you know, this is not a good versus evil situation, right? If you don't go for the party, you didn't commit a crime. In I'm using very basic examples, but I hope you get the point that you're going to need to discern between good and the will of God. And the only way to do that is the testimony. That there's going to be, you're going to need an inner witness. Let's call it like this, a testimony. And that whatever that testimony says is truth. So that beyond our ability to listen, for example, to what an online preacher is saying, or to what an online advocate is saying, right? And say, okay, this thing is coherently right. This thing, you know, they're even quoting scripture for it. Beyond our ability to do that, we need to have an ability to discern. What what is bearing witness? Is it it the Holy Spirit that's bearing witness? This thing sounds correct. This thing sounds good, but where is the witness coming from? And this check never fails this check never fails. John is certain about it. In fact, he says, you know all things, right? So this knowing is an inner capacity for discernment, right? And it is one of the blessings of intimacy with the father that, that the, the, the healthier your relationship with the father is the more you know the things that are good but are not for you. Yes, in the end times, you will need to know the things that are good but they are not for you. Right. Well, my interest in verse 19 was the word off, right? John says that they went out from us. It means that at some point they were in the church. They probably have titles in church or whatever, but they were not off us. He says if they had been off us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them. Were off us. He didn't say from us, said off. So, this is one of the textures of discernment. discernment is concerned with the origin of things. Because, friends, there are many good ideas in the world, but where is it off? You know, like what Stephanie was sharing, it, like there's nothing wrong on the surface in putting yourself out there, right? I mean, I didn't hear anything wrong, at least maybe I don't have all the details. There's nothing wrong in applying for funds, in applying for a loan, buying a house. But you see, that advice, where is it off? Because if it's not off God, you're going to pay the price for it down the line that your fellowship with God will suffer, will be affected because of that choice. So in the school of discernment, John is saying that you have an anointing. is the only New Testament writer that uses this expression of the believer. He said, there is... There is something that the Holy Spirit bestowed upon you. It's an unction when he came in you. You have it. It's not something that you pray to have. It's something you pray to activate, but it's not something you pray to have Says you have it. That anointing gives you, opens you to an economy of no whims. You just know. It opens you to the economy of discretion. You just know that I'm not supposed to have close business with XYZ. I'm supposed to talk to XYZ. supposed to laugh with XYZ, but you just know. And you see, when you now judge on the outside, you cannot, on the outside, see anything wrong with XYZ that, 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 that calls for such a posture, right? <laughs> but you know, ah, many times, if only God will open your eyes, you will see that a wolf, a wolf, can can live in sheep clothing but thankfully the book of revelation te- tells us that that wolf that came in sheep clothing when it uttered his voice then then we knew his identity whenever anything or anyone utters their voice and by that i mean somebody might be around you that may that doesn't need to be there but just pray and ask god to make them utter their voice let a topic or something come up that day speak about and reveal by their speaking the things that are hidden in the heart. And then God will give you discretion. So this anointing gives you discretion. He says in verse 21 that if you didn't have this anointing, I wouldn't bother writing to you because the things I'm writing to you can only make sense to you because the seed of truth is already inside you. You know, you cannot tell someone who does not have the seed of discernment that this is the last hour, that there's something called deception. The person who would say that all of these things people are doing are just creating this unity in the body or whatever. He's saying, I don't bother to write to everybody. I'm writing to you. I'm speaking to you because you know the truth. I'm casting precious things in front of you because I know that you can connect to what I'm saying. So... Even though there are false teachers on the outside, have you noticed that even though there are false teachers on the outside, right, trying to do something, John is telling them that I'm appealing to the inner man in you. First of all, do away with the lust of the flesh, and then you will not have an open door in your life. Secondly, pay attention to the anointing that is in you. And and then he tells us about denying Christ and lying. And the reason why God hates lying. You know, we said that one of the things that you do in fellowship is that you practice the truth. Truth is not something that is easy for us to say, right? Especially for men. I can speak for men, right? It's not easy for men, for example, to say, I'm struggling or I need help or even I'm offended. You know, we are very used to bottling up. And this is for men. I'm sure women have their own things right? Truth is not not in our nature to say. And that's why in the light, we learn to practice truth. We learn to tell God that, see, I'm angry. And I don't know what to do with this anger. I'm offended. I don't know what to do with this offense. We practice truth. The reason why practicing truth is necessary is that every lie, the way God sees lies, every lie is eventually leading up to the ultimate lie. And what's the ultimate lie? The ultimate lie is denying that Jesus is the Christ. What that means is that denying that the very things that we're talking about are possible. Because what it means that Jesus is the Christ is that God came in human form, lived in human form and put on display a life, a a texture, a quality of life that he invites you and I to that is possible. And the burden of the Antichrist is to make you see that whatever it is that Christ lived and was is not possible for you. Holiness is not possible for you. It's not possible to walk in power. It's not possible to walk above sin. It's not possible to be peaceful in the midst of the storm. It's not possible to be joyful even in the midst of sorrow and suffering. That's the posture that the enemy wants to impose on you and I. And that posture is a denial that Jesus is the Christ, and that's why God wants us to make a practice of truth, to become lovers of the truth, so that the truth can be a defense. Yes, if if you are about to take a decision, right, and then you you begin to sense <laughs> the sensations of the spirit about that decision, and you press into the sensations and you as as much as sense, I'm not even saying that you heard a clear voice. I'm saying you as much as sense that God is not happy with his decision, at the very least, at the very least, pause the decision. Pause it. Pause it at the very least. Get somebody else you can pray with. Get somebody else you can seek advice from. Or if you can, press into the Holy Spirit and have clarity. I can tell you a very interesting decision that I was very excited about. (laughs) I cannot tell you details because this involves other people. I was very excited about this decision and I was ready to execute the decision and then I lost my peace. Now, I I don't know how to describe that experience to you, but you know when you close your eyes to pray and it's dry, dry, completely dry. It's as though the Holy Spirit insists on not talking to you. If you like, stay there for four hours, still dry. I continued <laughs> in that dryness for three days. And then I said, wait a second. I sat down one day, I was like, Holy Spirit, <laughs> I won't take this decision again. And then I knew where my problem was. This decision was going to affect other people, actually. But the Holy Spirit bore witness people witness and it's our responsibility to acknowledge truth acknowledge the witness of truth acknowledge the ministry of truth maybe for you what god is teaching you because he took me through this lesson for you maybe what god is teaching you is just simply this don't make any decision in a hurry so it may not even be that in your case the decisions are wrong it's just that god is teaching you don't don't rush the decision i want you to learn how to pass the decision through the ministry of truth so that in the day when flesh is powering a decision and, and the spirit of truth speaks, you'll be able to discern in that day. Friends, this is what it takes to abide in God. We don't only have to take, make a decision to lay self on the altar. We have to make a commitment to truth. To seek the witness of the Spirit. And when we are sure about that witness, to set our face as a flint. It doesn't matter what anybody says. And to go in the direction of truth. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. Can you read for us then, Stephanie, verse 24 to the end?
1: Can you scroll up a bit, please, for yes. 24? Okay. Therefore, therefore let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning if what you heard from the beginning abides in you you also will abide in the son and in the father and this is the promise that he has promised us eternal life these things i have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you but the anointing which you have received from him abides in you and you do not need that anyone teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him and now little children abide in him that when he appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Amen.
0: Amen. Thank you so much, Stephanie. So this is the third principle of abiding in God, right? Which is that you need to let his word abide in you. Every time you see let, it means it's a command. It means that there is a decision you have to make. It means that this is not going to happen automatically. It means that you might hear today's message. You might be so blessed by it. You might listen to a sermon. You might be so blessed by it. And three weeks from now, you completely forget everything. And it does not produce fruit. And God will not take the blame for that. Because there is something that you have to do. He says, let. It's a decision you have to take. It's just like when the psalmist says in, I think, Psalm 116, that I will take up the cup of salvation and I will praise you. He's saying that I'm in a situation where all I see is darkness, but in the midst of that situation, I will make a decision to to remember my salvation and to praise you for it and to engage you in prayer. It's a decision. It's like... He had, it's an attitude, it's a posture, it's something he decided to do. Yes, everything around me is dark and gloomy, but I I would take up the cup of salvation. Yes, he, he built it into his life. He built it into his psyche. I, I would do it. God will not do it for me. He has given me the salvation. And this is part of what fellowship is. It's a partnership that God will take 99 steps. And there's that one step that we must always have to take right? He says, let it abide in you which you heard from the beginning. And, you know, when we did James chapter 4, submitting to God, that was such a beautiful chapter we did several months ago. We said that practically every issue in our life, in our Christian life, can be traced to a lack of abiding. And the particular issue that James was dealing with in chapter 4 was the issue of unanswered prayer. That it's possible to trace every unanswered prayer into your life, to an abiding issue, right? Either God is using the delay and answer to refine your faith, right? So God is inviting you to abide. He's using that delay to purify, strengthen, refine your faith. Or he's using the delay to pull you away from self, right? He's using the thing that you're asking for as a bait to set you on a journey of losing self. And if we find that something that God has assured us of is not working out in our lives the way God has assured us, the solution of scripture is abide. Abide. Don't be in a hurry to go and start preaching, right? Or go and start correcting other people. Or go and start even attempting to minister to other people. No, don't be in a hurry. Spend time to abide. Spend time to sit. Spend time to allow the word of God sink into your soul permeate into your soul the bible says in verse 25 that this is the promise that he has promised us eternal life unfortunately we don't have time but this is a beautiful scripture we can spend the whole evening on this promise eternal life what is eternal life it is a quality of life where god has come to participate with you in life so that every problem you have is an opportunity to see how god solves the problem you know, I used to tell people during COVID, right, that if COVID ever enters my body, that my life will become a sample of what happens with COVID plus tongues. You know, the, the scientists don't have that, that um, like they don't have that sample. But if it does, we, we'll use it as an, as an experiment and see, okay, when COVID comes and we mix it with tongues, what's the outcome? I don't know. That was just a conviction that the Holy Ghost put in my heart, right, about the whole thing. Because every challenge is an opportunity to see how God solves it. You know, we've seen how men solve problems. We see how men pay school fees. We've seen how men build a house. But I I want my own to be, be, how does Holy Ghost build a house? When the project of my wedding came up, I said, God, today I make you my chief wedding planner. I want to see what it looks like that God planned somebody's wedding. Right. I, and I told my wife to be, we prayed and said, God, you are our chief wedding planner. In fact, we're making a joke that one day we'll write a book called The Wedding Planner, right? That will be an evangelistic book. It's as mundane as it sounds. That's that's the life we have been called to is eternal life. Is God participating with us. Everything, everything becomes an opportunity for him to work. Yes. That's why Paul says that I'm convinced that neither life nor death nor things to come nor, 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 nor angels, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And this is what we have been invited in. He says, these things I've written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. It is true abiding that our discernment is sharpened. He says, the anointing which you have received from him abides in you. And you do not need that anyone teach you. Again, we don't have time to ask some questions. What does he mean here? But essentially what he's saying is that the anointing you have received in you is a confirmatory anointing, right? The anointing teaches you concerning all things. And it's true. And it's not a lie. It's a a confirmatory anointing. It can instruct you. Right, that it doesn't matter if it is a bishop that preached something, the anointing can instruct you. Yes, it can instruct you and say, this is the way to go, follow it. And finally, in verse 28, it says, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Now, this scripture has always fascinated me from the very first day I read it. John says that he's talking to believers. He's not writing to Gnostics like many people like say. He's not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to believers, people he calls little children, his children in Christ. He's saying that even though you see Christ when he comes, it's possible to be ashamed at his coming. Have you ever thought about that? Maybe that's the thought I want to leave you with. Because it's possible that when you see Christ, you realize how much you wasted life, how much you pursued the wrong things, how much you chased after the wind so much. Because you're you're suddenly going to realize that, wait a second, there was so much grace. There was so much grace. Why did I not pursue the path of holiness? Why did I not pursue the, the will of God, the path that he panned out for me? He made so many investments and now I am before him. And all I have to show for it is my life. Yes, I'm happy that I made it. But John is saying that it's possible to be ashamed before him. his coming. But that's not what I think is going to be the case for any of us. Verse 29 says, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. So in this verse 29, we see the root deception. Which is that some people were beginning to compromise on the practice of righteousness. My prayer for us is that God Himself will teach us how to abide, and that as we abide in Him, we will begin to bear fruit in the knowledge of God, that our oneness with God will not be will not be truncated by distraction, by deception by anything that is external or internal, but that the full potential of God's indwelling in our lives will be maximized in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.